Father's Day, the children get to pick out daddy's tie and lapel pin for that Sunday morning. And Elle specifically picked out this tie because she wanted me to have a tie that matched this badge that the kids gave me this morning for Father's Day. I want it to be blue, Daddy, so that it can match it. The card came with this, my Father's Day card came with this pin and it said, if you fit the title, wear the badge. <laughs> and so I have this large pin today. Last year it was a yellow sticky hand with a, a green tie and bumblebees all over it. This has been a bit of the, the tradition. But I enjoy it because I enjoy the relationship with my children. Yeah. I'm excited to be a father. Yeah. I was excited when I found out I was going to be a father the first time. When I learned that my wife was pregnant, I was excited. I was excited and I was scared. <laughs> but mostly excited. Um, the joy of, of uh, passing on the bloodline and knowing that if it was a boy, there would be uh, no debate <laughs> on what that baby was going to be named <laughs> as his daddy and his daddy, which, who will be here in July, and his daddy and his daddy before him. That we, we knew what the name was going to be. Uh, I was excited. I wanted to go to all the doctor visits, all the ultrasounds. All of the prenatal classes, I went to the diaper changing class, I went to the, the, the breastfeeding class, I went to all of these. I, I know how to work the pump, uh, the mechanical pumps, and had a, an opinion on which brand was better than them. I, I looked at all of that because I was excited about the promise of being a father. So much so that we had to pick a different OB. Because that one didn't want me at all the ultrasounds and all the visits. I was excited. I really got excited when I thought I was going to have to deliver the child myself because the, school, the, the, the hospital was slow about uh, alerting our new OB. I was excited. The promise of a father, the promise of becoming a father was a happy occasion for me. And these children have, number one, made me sometimes want to call my mama and apologize. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and number two, realize that they are just like me. I see some of the things that they do, and I'm like, why do they do that? And then I remember, you know what, I probably did it the same way. But the promise of being a father was exciting to me. 
the promise of being a father, I imagine, would have to be exciting to Abraham. Yes. Uh, Abraham was promised to be a father. Uh, he, he, Abraham was, was not known to be a father yet, but the promise was coming. God told him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he told him to get out of his country and from his family and from his father's house to a land that he would show them. And God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Father Abraham had many sons. I remember that song in, in, in vacation Bible school and Sunday school. Father Abraham had many sons. Had many sons, had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Amen. And, and, and so much so, Abraham became uh, such a popular and, and crucial figure in our history that three great mainline religions claim lineage to him. Uh, you have the Hebrews or the, the, the Jewish people that claim lineage to Abraham. You also have the Muslims that claim lineage to Abraham. And you have those who claim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, all claiming lineage to Abraham because of the promise that was given to him. But the thing is, is this promise that was given to him was given to him when he was in his 90s. He was promised to be a father, but he was in his 90s, and, 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 and both he and Sarah were supposed to be uh, past childbearing age. And he's saying not only are they going to have children past childbearing age, that this lineage that comes down is going to be one of great nations and make the name great. Supposed to have more children in the sun and in the sands on the, on the ground and the stars in the sky. He was promised that. And, and, and I looked at this text and I looked at what was going on and I saw some things that I think are great fatherly behavior. We love our mothers, but we also love our fathers. Yeah. And I've learned in my research in sociology and society that fathers are extremely important to us. Uh, the, those who don't have a father in their life or some sort of father figure in their life are apparently more likely to go to jail. Uh, matter of fact, there are for-profit prisons out here calculating it. By the time you get to third grade, right? If you get to third grade and you're not reading on level, then you'll never really catch up. And then if the, by the time you get to seventh grade, if you don't have a father in the household and you are flunking math and science, they have prepared a jail cell for you. And if they don't get that jail cell filled up, filled up they will go back and sue the state. But not having the occupancy rate. So the fathers are important. And some of the things that fathers do or should be doing even before they become a father are definitely important. Amen. Amen. Uh, and so Abraham is out and he's at the, 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 the great trees of Mamre. Some translations say the oaks of Mamre. And that's the first thing I see that fathers do. Uh, I look at Mamre and in the text Abraham owned that land. Abraham owned that land. Abraham spent his money on things that mattered. Yeah. Uh, and so as we, not just fathers, but people in general, we ought to be able to spend our money on things that matter. 
Uh, they, we, we, we look at this, this generational wealth and this generational uh, decline in wealth. And one thing that's, uh, that's unfortunate about our people is we don't leave much to pass on to the next generation. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about just material, uh, mental stability and wealth, health and learning. We don't pass very much on. We wait for them to turn 18. Get out. We ought to be able to have things to pass on to the next generation. We may not be able to pass on money, but we ought to be able to pass on knowledge. We won all of Abraham spent his money on things that mattered that by the time he and Lot had an argument, they said, all right, well, you take all of your cattle this way. And I'm going to take all of my cattle that way. And, and, and your employees and my employees are going to split up so that they're not arguing with each other. But he had that. He didn't just get that overnight. He learned about it. I know the pastor talking about money, and I ain't talking about money just so I can get the tithes up. I'm just talking about in general. One thing we ought to be able to pass on to people is financial knowledge. And if we can't pass it on because we don't have it, we ought to be able to get out there and get it. I get tired of the adage of them saying that if you want to hide something from a black person, you need to put it in a book. The information is out there for us to learn. We got to be willing to get it. And so we look at this place when he's at Mamre, that's land that Abraham owned. And that's land where both he and Sarah, when they passed on, were buried at because they owned it amongst other things. And so I look at what we got to do and good parent behavior, good parental behavior is for us to spend money on things that will last, not things that will depreciate. There's a book out there that changed my life about money called The Millionaire Next Door. They interviewed a bunch of millionaires, saw where they shopped, saw where they ate, saw what they did with their money, saw all these things that they did, and they ran into trouble when they were trying to put on uh, an event where they could come in and interview all of these millionaires and multi-millionaires because they had thought wrong. Um, they ordered food for them, caviar, and all kind of other five-star meals, and it went uneaten. Why? Because the millionaires did not eat that kind of food. They asked them what kind of food did they eat. They said, I'd do hot dogs or spaghetti or normal kind of food. They didn't eat the caviar and the escargot that they had bought because they don't spend their money on that kind of thing. The funny thing, though, too, was they had a brokerage next, uh, in, the, in the room next to the one where they were interviewing these, inter these millionaires and the brokers, the people that worked for the millionaires, they ate all of that up. <laughs> ate it all up because the, the millionaires didn't. And what we learned at the, in the millionaire next door is that people who were really wealthy did stuff like shop at Walmart. They let the depreciation on a car go one or two years before they buy it. They didn't blow a lot of money on, on, on things that would depreciate. But they would spend money on making sure their children got educated. Matter of fact, they set up trust funds and it's like you got until this amount of time to finish college or else you can't get the inheritance. You got about this amount of time to do this. So they didn't just leave everything to them. They set it up so that it would happen for generation after generation after generation. The Bible says that the man sets up something for his children's children. 
And so this good parental behavior is spending money on things that last. What do we spend our money on? You can look at a bank statement and tell who somebody's God is. And sometimes we get in, a, we get in this trouble and we spend money that we don't have to buy things that we don't need to impress people who don't like us anyway. So we got this Abraham already looking at what he's doing and he's spending money on things that matter. And so that's what we ought to do is spend money on things that matter. And then these visitors come out. And Abraham meets with the heavenly visitors and he ministers to the heavenly visitors. Uh, these people, Yahweh appears to Abraham at his home. I'll ask a question, don't have to answer it. But is God welcome to visit your house? And not just saying is God welcome to visit your house. When you know somebody is coming over, you do things to make sure that your visitors are comfortable. You don't give your visitors something that they don't like. You don't give your visitors something that they can't use. You don't give your visitors something that is, anti, that is against everything they stand for. Uh, if, if we had some, some, some Jewish people visiting, I would not be serving ham. When we know we have company coming, or we know we can expect company coming, or we, we prepare for unexpected company, our house is in a position for God to visit. The area is set up to allow them in. What we're doing before they get there is not something contrary to what they are being. So what I'm saying is, is if God was in your house, would God like what he was seeing going on in your house? Abraham met with the heavenly visitors. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre where he was sitting at the entrance to his tent. If God wanted to come to your house, would that be a place he would be welcome? And so not only did they come and visit God, Abraham saw them. And when he saw them coming, he went to them. Uh, good parental behavior not only is spending money on things that last and, and, and making our houses hospitable for, some, for God to take place in, it's also going out to meet God where God is at. Uh, the text says he, he hurried to them. Some translation says he ran to them, which would have been undignified in that manner. That people weren't supposed to run to meet somebody else. But Abraham saw God coming and he got undignified to go meet him. Uh, he, got out of, he got out of place. No, Somebody probably would have said, in my imagination, you know, Abraham, it don't take all that. Uh, Abraham, you don't need to make yourself undignified to go meet God. But he went and got undignified to meet God. He was willing to go out to find God where God was. And it didn't matter what anybody else thought about him. It didn't matter how he looked to those friends who don't really care about him anyway. He went out and he ran to meet God. He was hospitable to his heavenly visitors. He ran out to meet them and he worshipped them. Worshipped them. He bowed down on his face and said, if I find favor in your sight. 
Uh, that was, a, that was a, a, a specific phrase that was used during that time. And in Hebrew, it was used in the hospitality because that meant that you understood that the person that was in front of you was of a higher rank than you. And even if they weren't of a higher rank than you, you treated them like they were a higher rank than you. So how is it then if that's what he was doing to the visitors, you don't have to treat them like a higher rank than you are. They are a higher rank than you are. Uh, God was there when the world was formed. He's not a man that he can lie, nor the son of man that seek cause to repent. He met him where he was at and asked for the help. And not only that, did he worship him, he invited him in. God can go wherever God wants to go, but it's that much more better when you have a presence that you can invite him in. Is anything that we do when we are not here on Sundays or, or, or maybe for a half, an hour or so on Wednesdays, are, are, are what we doing something that we would want to invite God to? He invited them in. And then after he invited them in, he gave to them. Uh, he got water so that they could wash their feet and he gave them an opportunity to rest and he served them. That's what we ought to do as parents is serve. I mean, if you got to take care of any kind of child, you are a servant. Uh, when they get up in the middle of the night, <laughs> you are at the beck and call before they can tell you if they cry a certain way. You are at the beck and call. We have to be servants. But not only do we have to be servants to our children until they're old enough to take care of themselves, we got to be servants to the Lord. He saved us. He sustained us. He redeemed us. How can we not offer service to God? We would not be here if it was not for God. We would not be where we've gotten. We would not have the jobs that we have. We would not be able to be in our right minds. We wouldn't have food on our tables, clothes over our backs, roofs over our heads, the activity of our limbs. We ought to be willing to serve God for what God has done for us. If God never does anything else for us, he's already done more than enough. We are nothing but filthy rags. We don't deserve the favor that God does for us. Who is man that God is mindful of us, cares for us, and loves us? We don't deserve it, so we ought to serve. Because when we serve, that's a way of saying thank you. And so he refreshed them. He washed, he got them water so that they could wash their feet, and he served them. And we ought to be able to serve one another. And he found the favor in his eyes and he realized that they were, uh, uh, he, that these heavenly visitors were more important than he and he treated them like that. These were guests in his house. These were angels unaware. These were people, these heavenly visitors coming to him. And so he treated them as such. He worshipped them. He let them in to his life. He served them. He gave himself to them. And that's what we ought to be doing as not just parents, but as Christians in general. Whether we have children or not, we ought to be inviting God into our lives. We ought to be giving our time, our talents, and our treasures to God. We ought to be serving God because only what you do for Christ will last. And he tells them very well to do as you say. There's nothing more hurtful than a broken promise from a parent. There is nothing more hurtful than a broken promise from a parent. There is nothing more hurtful than a broken promise from a parent. We got to be mindful of what we say. 
Because people are watching and people are, 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 are looking at what we do and when we don't do what we said we are going to do, those relationships are damaged. Sometimes more than we'll ever understand. And so it says to do as you say. We as parents have to do what we say we are going to do. And because they did that, after all of that happened, they got the pres- They got the promise. Sarah and Abraham are told they will have a son. And at first, they're incredulous. Uh, Sarah overhears these messengers of God telling her husband that they're going to have a baby, and she laughs. But who can blame her? The thought of having an, a baby at an old age is crazy. And, and, and she says to herself in the text that both her and Abraham are, 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 are too old to be taking care of children. I've heard that phrase before. When grandparents have to take care of children to step in for parents, sometimes we are too old to take care of them. But, and and, 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 and I, I cut Sarah some slack. I understand what's going on, but even though I cut her some slack, uh, some of the writers in the New Testament, when they talk about this passage, they, 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 they are a little less nice about their assessments. Uh, Hebrews says that Abraham was so old that he was good as dead. And in, in the letter to the Romans, Paul says the same thing about Abram. And then additionally says that Sarah's womb is also dead. That's pretty harsh. But I cut them some slack. I cut Hebrews 4, I mean Hebrews 11 and Romans 4 a little slack. But they have a point. Uh, somebody in their 90s is not supposed to be physically able to conceive a child without some sort of scientific assistance. But during the pregnancy, that laugh that Sarah and Abraham would have had about the ridiculousness of the idea turns into a different kind of laughter. Uh, Abraham and Sarah would have had to expect and embrace the laughter. For nine months, a 90-year-old walking around with a, with a stomach that is protruding out, telling her that she's having her first child at 90 years old. That would be something to laugh about. Um, being on the street with, with this joy and laughter, expecting the boy. I can only imagine what kind of baby shower they would have had. What kind of looks she would have had down the street and and people looking at her. But there was laughter. It was a funny situation. And it goes from funny disbelief to funny look at how God is. Uh, It comes from funny you can't do it to to the funny of is there anything too hard for God. Uh, That's why they named the child Isaac which is the Hebrew word for laughter. And, 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 and this, this, this Hebrew word for laughter allowed them to have this, this promise. And I, I think about the ultrasound because I look at how far we have gone when I think about this. Because beforehand, uh, uh, guessing a baby's gender was pretty much superstition. People said, well, if you crave this versus that, it's a boy versus a girl. We got all kind of theories that we put in how high the baby sits. Uh, what kind of attitude you take on when you do it, what kind of food you crave. But now we have little devices that we can put on the baby's stomach. And you can see uh, on, on, the, on the woman's stomach, you can see if it's a boy or a girl. And so they're able to see what you were, were, were guessing at before. 
And so these people were guessing at possibly having a child. And then they actually had the child, and it was no longer that. And we have to be able to understand that now, even though we can't see it now. When we get to the future, it's going to be that much more clear. It may look like it's bad now, but when we look back on this later, we'll be able to understand if it had not been. For the Lord on my side, where would I be? When we look at the trouble now, and then we get on the outside, and we can understand that my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It may be looking messed up now, but when we get on the outside, we'll understand that we can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives us strength. And so we can say, is there anything too hard for God? Just like Abraham said in verse 14, is there anything? thing too hard for God. When the diagnosis comes and we got sickness in our body and don't know how we are going to get well, is there anything too hard for God? When we come into a situation where we have more month than money, is there anything too hard for God? Father's Day is a rough, rough time because there are some people who don't have the best relationship with their fathers. And there are fathers out there looking to try to reconcile with their children, but they may have a rough situation with their baby mama. Is there anything too hard for God? When a relationship appears beyond reconciliation, we got to have that faith and understand, is there anything too hard for God? We may be looking around us and all we see are dark times and trouble ahead, but there is there anything too hard for God? We may not know how we are going to get out of this situation that we're in, but I ask again, is there anything too hard for God? Uh, we cannot put these limitations on God. The creation cannot tell the created, the creator what it does. We cannot put these limitations on God. God cannot lie. If God says something, it becomes true. God speaks and universes are formed. God says, let there be light and there is light. God says, you are healed and you are healed. So we cannot put any kind of limitations on God. Ask yourself again, is there anything too hard for God? Some translations say wonderful. Uh, is there anything that is not wonderful for God? There's something that has to be done. God can do it. We just have to be able to hold on. Just hold on a little longer. And it'll get better by and by. We cannot possibly set these limits on God because God will do things exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ever ask or imagine if there's nothing too hard for God. And so you have this faith. You have these parents, uh, Abraham worshiping, running out to meet God, welcoming God into his house, serving God, giving his time to God, bow down and worship, making time for that. And because of that, and because of other things that happened, he was able to be a big part in history. Because that child that was named Isaac, that laughter, he, he, he went on to have another child that was named Jacob. And, and I like looking at genetics, and there are certain things that I've learned about genetics. And one thing that I've learned about genetics is if it is anywhere in your family tree, it's possible to show up in that child. So you can have a family full of light-skinned people. But if somewhere up that line there was somebody that's brown-skinned, it's possible for this light-skinned people to have a brown baby. Yeah. 
Because if it's somewhere up that line, somewhere in that DNA, it's going to come down. And not only do I like that, but I understand you have different things of psychology, nature versus nurture. There are some things you learn that you are born with. It's just in your genes. Uh, my, my build and, and my athletic prowess came from my mama. It's just in my genes. My temperament came from my dad. It's just in my genes. These kind of things just show up. And there are some things that I'm born with. And there are some things that I'm learned. And I understand that I didn't just get it from my mama and daddy. But it went all the way up their family trees as well. And so some of that stuff comes down and it comes into there. So Abraham has a child named Isaac. And Isaac has a child named Jacob. And Jacob, who was called Israel, spent a whole lot of time struggling with, with two different things because he wrestled with God. And, and all over Genesis, it talks about Jacob called his, his children in. And, 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 and then Israel set up on the bed. And so Jacob was a trickster and a con man. And Israel was the one who struggled with God and, and was able to see his face. And, and it helps me to understand that in this life, I'm still going to have those struggles. Jacob won't always go away completely. I still have to constantly fight down Jacob so that I can get my Israel out. Uh, uh, those things will happen and I understand that it will continue to go on and it'll go down the line. And then Jacob, Jacob will have a whole bunch of sons, one of them by the name of Judah. And I like Judah because Judah means praise. When Joseph was thrown in the pit, the only person that said, don't kill him, was Judah. You may be at the pit of your life. But then there's the only thing that's going to be able to get you out of the pit. The only thing that is going to be able to keep you from losing it all. The only thing that is going to keep you alive is going to have to be that praise. And so Judah went on to have a couple, somebody, uh, Perez and, and Zerah. And then Perez got Hezron and Hezron begat Ram and Aminadab. And Aminadab begat Nashon and Nashon begat Salmon. And Salmon was there. He had a child with a woman by the name of Rahab. Rahab had a little bad spot in her history. You go and read the Battle of Jericho, you'll understand her job was not the type of job you put on the top of your resume. But she was able to be redeemed. And, and, and just because she was able to be redeemed, I take faith, I take I take pride in that, and I, I take comfort in that to understand that it doesn't matter what my past is. God can still have a, a plan for me. And, 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 and Salmon and Rahab have somebody by the name of Boaz in, the, in, in Ruth, in, in, in the book of Ruth. And Boaz, he redeems Ruth. Uh, and it says that he redeemed him. And it says that to confirm all things, man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. And so Boaz plucked off his shoe to redeem Ruth, who, who had been out and about. She was a widow and had no way to take care of herself. But Boaz was able to redeem her. And so I'm happy about that because when I look at this bloodline and understand that there are dual natures that I, can, that I have to struggle with sometimes. And I understand that I'm going to need praise sometime to get out the pit. And I understand that my job, my job history may not be the best or my personal history may not be the best. I understand that there's somebody that down on this bloodline plucked off their shoe for me and they redeemed me as well and Boaz he forgets and Boaz with Ruth has somebody by the name of Obed and Obed has somebody by the name of Jesse and Jesse has somebody by the name of David and David sits here and works this life out and he says I will bless the Lord at all times his praises shall continually be in my mouth my soul shall make a boast of the Lord the humble shall hear thereof and be glad 
Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together so I understand that this person in his bloodline can praise people even though their friends have left them. Even though they are in a cave and they have to pretend like they are crazy to get away. That thing goes down the bloodline. And David goes on to have somebody by the name of Solomon. And Solomon was the wisest man that ever came. He's in that bloodline. And he said, my son, forget not thy laws, but let thy heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. And thou shalt find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy path. It's going down this bloodline. So I got to understand that that's going down the bloodline. And it'll go all the way down to the bloodline till we get to a manger. Because there's no room in the inn. In this manger and swaddling clothes, because there was no room in the inn, there's going to be a man looking at a baby that ain't his. I said there's going to be a man looking at a baby that ain't his. With this woman named Mary who claims she's been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. But he still takes that child and puts it on his name. And it goes all the way from Judah to Jesus. And that's why it says that he is the root and the offspring of David. Because he was there born in the lineage of David. But he was there before David was born. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. All because Abraham believed the promise. Abraham to Isaac to Jacob all the way down to Jesus. Because he believed in this promise. And that's not where it all ends because you have this baby boy named Jesus who heals, gets up and becomes grown and heals the sick, raises the dead, open up blinded eyes, sets the captives free, walks on water, feeds the multitude with two fish and five loaves of bread. He does all of these things. He calls Lazarus to come forth. He does all of these things because he's the, the fulfillment of the promise. He makes, he makes the name great. He does all of these things and then he goes to Calvary for us and dies for every one of our sins. And so even though we don't have, we some of us may not have a father in our lives, we have somebody who's a mother to the motherless and a father to the fatherless. And we may have some generational curses and some issues that we are dealing with. But when Jesus went to the cross, all of that was nailed onto the cross with him. So we have power over it and the, the, the grave has no more victory and death has no more sin because of this promise that was followed and followed all the way through. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come.